Romans chapter 1, if you will take your Bibles and turn uh, to this book, I was thinking as we were coming to this passage, uh, or well, the ending of uh, our series in the book of Romans, I was reminded of two illustrations that have been used throughout this. First of all, I remember telling the story on one occasion where in Massachusetts, we went to a place called Mount Wattatic, and what you could do there in Massachusetts, when you climb this mountain, you could get and be able to see some 60 miles from where we were at to where Boston was at. And you could see the buildings there uh, and the like. But you could see places like New Hampshire and Vermont and New York uh, from that mountain that was there. And so uh, it took a little bit of climbing. It was not an easy climb. And uh, some here have been uh, that came out and visited us actually went to this. But I can remember on one occasion where my wife and I went up and uh, we're taking different people with us and uh, we got to the top and then we started coming back down again and we realized uh, after about 15 minutes that nothing looked familiar. Uh, their signs in the wood were not very good. Uh, there are certain sections where the trail just disappears and whatever and they have different signs and we suddenly began to figure out that we were suddenly in New Hampshire, not in Massachusetts anymore. We had gone the wrong way. And so what we were forced to do was to retrace our steps. We had to go back up the mountain to find the right path and then come back down uh, the way that we had to come. That's what we're going to do this morning when we look at the book of Romans. We're going to retrace our steps of what we've gone through uh, in this uh, book for those of you that have been with us, this has gone on for about a year and a half as we've gone through this book. Uh, I went through and looked last night. It's about 60 sermons that we've gone through, which I guess is appropriate because this is the longest of Paul's writings. It's about 7,100 words as you go through it, and it's a lengthy book, but there are so many things in this book you can easily forget as the result of time. And so it is good for us to go back and review. It's sort of like what we would do with trips that we would take with teenagers. And uh, we would take either a senior trip or we would take missions trips. And what we would do at the very last day in the last few hours, we would go, okay, we're going to play the alphabet game. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with the letter A. And we want you to recall something that starts with the letter A that you saw in the last week and a half. And it'd make them think, and they'd be like, oh, I can't think of anything to start with the letter A. And it would, re well, force them to think back to the week and a half before, which the first day of the trip seemed like hundreds of years before, and they would be thinking, oh yeah, I remember seeing this, and I remember seeing this. And so you'd go through, and you'd have letter A and B, and you'd finally get to Z, and they'd come up with something for Z. But it would force them to remember things that well yeah were really important at the time but because of time you know you've now gone a whole week and a half you've forgotten those events and those activities that you've done and for us this morning as we go through the book of romans what we're going to do is just go through this book and remind ourselves of some of the things that as you went through you're probably going wow or yes lord that's fantastic and you've forgotten about them we're human. We forget. We don't remember things. And so what we have is the opportunity just for us this morning to go through a book that as you look at church history has impacted all sorts of people. 
You can read the testimony of church leaders like Augustine and Luther and Wesley and Tyndale and others, these individuals who had such great impact in church history. They were first influenced by the book of Romans. Some of the thoughts and the ideas that went through this, they looked at this book and were moved eternally by some of the things that they read and some of the things that they heard. And for us this morning, I I want us to start off with what Paul gave at the beginning as his theme. I want you to look at at verses 16. Actually, it's back up to verse number 15. Paul says this, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. See, the Apostle Paul was an individual that had experienced, he said, I'm not ashamed of the power that is found in the gospel. You say, why is that? Because he was transformed by the power of the gospel. When you think about the gospel, the gospel is just a presentation of Jesus Christ and who he is and how it applies to our life. And when the Apostle Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he had been a person who was out to destroy the church. He was having people hauled off to prison. He was delighting in the death of certain individuals and giving approval of this. This was his life. He delighted in these things. And yet on the Damascus road, when he met the Savior, he was completely changed. A man who had been a blasphemer, who hated God, suddenly becomes one who is a a lover of God, a person who is proclaiming the name of Christ wherever he goes and is changed for eternity. He knew the power of the gospel, and so he was not ashamed of it because it had changed him. When he met Christ, it was a power beyond himself, outside of himself, that changed his course and changed him for eternity and so when paul talks about this he's making the statement that i'm not ashamed of this gospel it's the power of god and the salvation to everyone that believeth and it has faith and you go well faith in what well it's faith in jesus christ and he's going to explain this in great detail as he goes through this book but that's important Because there's a lot of people in this world that think that I can somehow impress God and that one day I'll be saved, I'll enter into the courts of heaven because of effort that I have put in. That I'm good enough. That I'm, I'm, well, perfect enough or mature enough or this, that God will accept me into glory. And that's how a lot of people thought. A lot of religions think this way. But for one individual, as we we talked about, uh, for Martin Luther, who was a teacher in a church, he was moved by the fact that this statement in verse 17, the just, and in this case you say, what do you mean just? A person who's right with God shall live 
by and what he would have uh, inserted into that would be by this by works he was teaching this book he he was a teacher in a college and he was getting bored of the material that he had and someone suggested that he teach the word of god so he chose the book of romans and he's teaching this to college students and when he gets to this he's just suddenly impacted by the fact wait a second a person by my understanding is saved by works by doing the works of the law but it says here no 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 you are saved by faith not by works and for that man it was a transforming thought that salvation is not something a person works for it's something that you simply receive by faith now the apostle paul starts off and says this is my theme salvation has a power to transform individuals and it is uh, received by faith and then he goes through and begins to explain what this means in large detail and as we went through at the beginning and i don't know if some of you wrote this down and and boxed this off or gave yourself this outline but we alliterated our outline for this book we said this that the apostle paul starts off with sin dealing with that subject and then he moves to salvation uh, and then moves to the fact that when a person's saved they live a different not life which means they're sanctified and that there is a sovereignty of god that can keep us secure throughout eternity and ultimately this that a person who's saved then serves now we'll go back through and and address those as we go through but that was the outline it's a very basic outline but what paul deals with first when when you think about salvation it's the gospel and that word gospel is good news and for most of us as you turn on regular television you're not getting good news you're getting everything that has happened that's gone wrong and when you open up this book you would say well if this is a book about good news then we're going to get good news to start off with and what the apostle paul starts with is the bad news is that everybody in this world has a problem called sin everyone throughout human history has had a problem called sin and you say well what happens here well what's the problem of sin well it's because of this it's in opposition sin is a, something that is opposed to god and what he's declared and and choosing to do differently than what he said in verse 18 it says this that the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, men who hold the truth and unrighteousness and what that idea of holding is that it's the idea that they're suppressing what they know about god they're holding that down and you say well how does that happen well the apostle paul explains this verse 19 because that which may be known of god is manifest in them for god hath showed it unto them verse 20 for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead so that they're without excuse you think about this and in, in romans chapter 2 is going to actually tell us this that they actually have the law of god written in their heart 
that they at least have this in their heart that God has placed uh, in their being, that they understand, okay, God exists and that I have these rules from him, but more so they look at the universe around them and the creation that goes on, as you find in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. You can look everywhere and go, this did not happen by accident. There's a God out here that did this. Somebody created all of this. And that you can see God's eternal power and Godhead in the smallest of cells and in the vast, uh, vastness of space with all of its galaxies and billions of them. And what happens with mankind when they see all of this and can understand there's a God out there? What do they do? Well, you find in verse 21, everyone goes down this course because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. It became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish hearts were dar darkened. They professed themselves to be wise, or professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like into corruptible man, into birds, into four-footed beasts, and creeping things. And you say, well, what happened? Well, mankind goes, I don't like what God has made, and I don't like the way he's doing it. You see this right at the beginning of your Bible. If you start off in the book of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 3, and what do you find? You have people who are living in a perfect environment, and everything is perfect, and Satan comes along and goes, God is, well, he's not righteous, you won't surely die, and he's not as holy as he says he is, because you can become like him, and that he's just holding things back from you, he won't let you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because he knows this, that you'll become like him. He's holding back good things from you. And you know what? That's the lie that everyone believes. That God is somehow unfair, that we can be like him, that he's not good, and mankind decides, I'm going to go my own way and create my own little universe, and I'm going to create God in what I think he should be like. Problem is, is that more often than not, mankind tries to create God into their own image, make him look like themselves. But the fact is, is they're not thankful for what God has given to them and the creation that they've given and the life that they've given. No, they go their own way. They suppress the truth. They hold it down. They exchange it for a lie. And you say, well, what does God do to that? Well, verse 24, seeing that these individuals say, I don't like God the way he is. I'll change him. I'll make him in what I think he should be. Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. These individuals who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And what you see in this passage is God just says, okay, you want to go your own way? You want to do your own thing? I'll let you go that way. Okay, you can find out what it's like to live without me or without my help, and you can go your own way. And God gives them up. And as you read through this passage, you find all sorts of uh, different sins that are listed. 
And if that's not bad enough, what you find is that every person in this world has this as a problem. Look at verse 29. Individuals being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful. So basically he's listed every sin that's out there. These individuals who know the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. See, these people aren't only sinning themselves. What they're doing is they're applauding people who are also disobeying God and going their own way. That's what that idea of having pleasure in them is that they're applauding them thinking about this passage and you think about a month like what we've come into you know june is no longer uh, june 1st is no longer celebrating the end of school or the official start of summer what is it now it's a whole month given to pride and people applaud activity they may not do themselves but they're applauding people and going great go your way do your own thing go against what god has set as far as the order of creation and nature go ahead and they applaud it and we live in a world like that where you have corporations and even governments that are saying you ought to support this you ought to applaud this and we live in a world like that where sin is magnified and sin is applauded You'd say, well, people like that are sinners. Well, Paul has to address that because he says not only people like this are sinners, but religious people are sinners. This is what all chapter 2 is dealing with that you have in verse number 2 or chapter 1 of verse 2. It says this, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. And you look at chapter 2, and it's dealing with this fact that you have these religious leaders. He's really specifically talking to the Jews who worshiped one God. And they had the law of God and they could declare what the law of God said and they would look at these people and go, they're doing wrong. Look at this, that person's doing wrong and that person's doing wrong and that person's doing wrong and that person's doing wrong. And the Apostle Paul has to say, well, wait a second, let me talk about this. Are you breaking the law yourself? You that teach these things, do you not do these things that you're declaring are wrong? And it is a in chapter two it's dealing with religious individuals who think okay i'm okay with god that god's okay with me because i'm somewhat religious and i kind of know what he says and that type of thing that i'm better off than those people that are like what we just talked about in romans chapter one and what the apostle paul says is this no both are under the judgment of god that one day they will stand before god and have no excuse for what they've done no leg to stand on nothing to uh, promote their uh, stance before god uh, they're both sinners and you talk about this that individuals uh, that it only takes one crime for a person to be a criminal it only takes one sin for a person to be a sinner 
And the Apostle Paul goes, it doesn't matter, everyone's under the judgment of God, both people who are ignore God, don't care about God, have no idea who he is, they don't want to know him, and even people who are religious, they are people that are under the judgment of God. And it gets to the point in Romans chapter 3 that if you think, well, someone's not going to be under the judgment of God because, well, everyone, you know, there's got to be somebody out there that's okay. And you look at, uh, in verse number, verse number 9 of chapter 3, it says this, when it's talking about, well, maybe there's someone who's not a sinner and will escape the judgment of God, it just simply says this, verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved that Jews and Gentiles, that all are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. You know what you got in that passage? There's a whole bunch of general statements. All none every what he's just simply saying this there's a universality of sin everybody sins there's no one that escapes the judgment of god everyone sins there's none righteous no not one you can go and look in this world and you're not going to find someone who doesn't sin they may be nicer than the next person but they have done things that go contrary to what god has declared in his word as being right they've done it and so you come to verse number 19 it says now we know that the things whatsoever the law saith it saith to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before god you get to verse 19 and if you've read the book properly you realize this i have no hope i am in the courtroom of god i am declared guilty i have no hope of eternity in god with uh, with god with god forever in his presence i have no hope of that because i'm guilty and that's exactly where the apostle paul wants you at i can remember having a man in a church many years ago that was just really getting introduced to christianity and understanding some things there and and told him read through romans and i saw him uh, the sunday after i recommended that and he said well i got through romans one two and part of three and he goes i'm really really discouraged and i said that's exactly where you need to be at you need to come to the point when you read the scripture that you've got no hope in your own strength it's like going into the doctor's office and as you go into the doctor's office and they sit down and they've got this somber face and they just simply said this, you've got this disease and there is no treatment for this. Now, doctors attempt to, in some cases, give you some hope, but there are cases where they just go, there's no hope for you, go home, get your life in order, get your things taken care of because we can do nothing for you. And that's how you should feel when you get to verse 19 of Romans chapter 3. I've got no hope. I'm not going to impress God. Religion's not going to help me. And it doesn't matter that I'm ignorant of God. It doesn't matter I'm under the judgment of God because I do sin all the time. 
And so you start off Romans and it's about sin, but all of a sudden, verse 20, everything changes over to salvation. The good news. I mean, you look at this and verse number 20 says this, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You have no hope. Verse 21, but now, okay, wait, there's a complete contrast to what you should feel in verse 19 and 20. There's no hope, but here's what's happened. Verse 21, now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith and we might say of Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ and to all and upon all them that believe there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation a sacrifice through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission or the forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God you suddenly go well what is this well you're in the courtroom of God you're guilty and then all of a sudden you're told this, that there's a possibility of you being declared not guilty. And you say, how? Well, it's simply this, that Jesus Christ has offered a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies God's judgment for people who are sinners. You say, what's the, the judgment for people who are sinners? It's death, and it's not just referring to physical death. Uh, death is a um, death defined is just simply this a separation when i die physically my body separates from my soul and spirit but there is a death that's even more devastating it's that i'm have a death that i'm separated from god and if i die in my sins what i'm told is this is that i will suffer a second death which means this is that i'm going to by body soul and my spirit are going to be separated from god forever in a place called hell and it's a real place it's not fictitious. You go, well, I think it is. No, Christ talked more about hell than he did heaven. You read the Gospels. So this is a devastating thing. I'm told I'm a sinner. Well, what's the, the punishment? Death. Well, all are going to die physically. No, you're going to be separated from God forever. So what can I do to clear my name? Nothing. So that means someone's going to have to take my punishment. Yes. So who takes my punishment? Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. And on the cross, when Jesus died, he took upon him the wrath that we deserve for eternity. He took upon himself on the cross. And you say, well, what good did that do? Because someone who was a human being just like me, Jesus, who was also God, which means he's infinite in all of his ways and he's able to take things on infinitely in his power, he was able to take the judgment of God upon him and be able to pay for it as our substitute on the cross. So what a person simply has to do, as the Apostle Paul says here, is that the gospel is just simply this, that I believe in Jesus Christ, who was the sacrifice. He paid the penalty that I deserve. Yes, I'm guilty in the court of God, but you have Christ here that says, listen, I've made the payment. This person has accepted my payment. And it's like God, who is the judge, says, not guilty. That idea of justification that's talked about here in this passage in Romans it means to simply this, uh, to describe this, that my status changes. 
It's as if I have not sinned because now my sins have been paid for by Jesus on the cross. My status is changed from being guilty to not guilty because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a person doesn't just get saved because Jesus Christ died on the cross. The scripture is very clear. A person has to say, Jesus Christ died for me. I need this. I need to accept it as a gift, as Romans talks about. It's the gift of God. You accept gifts at Christmas, and this is what happens, uh, that you accept it. It becomes yours. So it is when you say, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He died for me. It's the only thing that's going to give me a right standing before God. And as you go through this, suddenly you go, that's good news. I'm not required to do any more work. I'm not required to do anything. Because you think about this, when Jesus was on the cross, he cried this, it is finished. And you say, what? The work that was needed for salvation. The payment's been done. And so here a person simply has to say, Jesus Christ died for me. He is claiming that he is the replacement for my sins. He's paid my judgment. I believe that. I accept him as my savior. Now you say, what is the the rest of Romans chapter four and chapter five dealing with? Well, it's dealing with all sorts of questions people might have. Is, is salvation really free to us? Can we just accept it and it's okay? And so questions are asked. You look in Romans chapter 4. People look at the Old Testament and go, well, wait, were people in the Old Testament saved by works or were they saved by faith? Let's talk about the chief example. And they have an individual in verse number 4 in chapter 1, Father Abraham. Okay, how was he saved? Well, it's because he was a great guy. No, if you read the story in Genesis, he does some really horrible things. You say, well, how was he saved? Well, you have in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, which is quoted uh, in the passage here in verse 3 of Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was imputed to his account. It was given to him. It wasn't a righteousness that he earned, a right standing before God. No, God said certain things, and Abraham said, I believe and trust that. And God says, you have righteousness that's not your own. I'm giving it to you. So for a Jew, they might say, well, wait a second. Abraham was saved by works, and Paul goes, no, he wasn't saved by works. Well, you have other questions. Maybe he went through a ceremony like circumcision, and maybe that's what happened, and and Paul answers those questions, and maybe they were from the right family line. You know, just being in the right family, you can be saved, and and Paul answers that question in Rome chapter 4. No, it doesn't matter what family you're in. You get to Romans chapter 5, and it talks about the fact that, yes, we all have a same father. You get to the end there, that we all have a father by the name of Adam who sinned, and as a result of that, we're all sinners. But there's a second Adam who comes in this world, Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, who's born of a virgin. So he is uh, an individual who is a human being, but he is God, and he comes and he dies. And as the second Adam, even because you had in Adam, the first Adam, all die because of sin, but in this Adam, you have the possibility of many being made alive, people being saved. And so salvation, it's free. It's just simply putting faith in in Jesus Christ and and understanding that he died for me and accepting this and the glorious change that happens. And for those that have accepted Jesus Christ, they understand this change. 
It wasn't that they improved their own life and said, I'm going to do better. No, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And for some, when they got saved, there were some things that changed instantaneously. And that's what you get into in Romans chapter 6. Because salvation, we oftentimes think of as a point in time. Okay, I got saved, and I, I can say this, uh, I came to know Jesus as my Savior as a five-year-old. As a vacation Bible school, understand that it, just like everyone else, I was deserving of hell even though I attended church every week. My church attendance was not going to impress God. No, I needed Jesus Christ. And it was a very you know, simple message, but I understood that, put my faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, that was the point I got saved, but I am still being saved. And you go, what do you mean by that? I've got the benefits of salvation continuing from that point. I'm changing, hopefully, day by day. And that's what the Apostle Paul begins to talk about. You do have a point where you're saved. Your destination is changed for eternity. You are going to be in heaven. You're declared not righteous. But you say, I still have my old flesh with me. And I still sin. Do I still have to sin? Do I somehow lose my salvation because I'm a sinner? And the answer is no. But you get to chapter 6 and we start a section that we call sanctification and you really can tie it with security, okay? Because the question is that people think, well, listen, if I sin, I've lost my salvation. Okay, some of you may have thought this, you know, okay, I've lost my salvation. I did this and this and I've committed a sin and that God possibly couldn't save me. And the answer is this, no, you're still saved because when you got saved, you became a part of the family of God. You can't lose those ties with God. God is your father, Christ is your brother. You can't lose those ties. But as in a family relationship, you can still do things that upset family members. And so it is that we still have a sin nature, but what Paul's going to talk about is that you don't have to sin anymore. Because you get into verse number one of chapter six, and this is what we sometimes call sanctification. Sanctification is the idea of becoming more like Christ. Okay, less like what our old sinful self was and more like Christ. That's what sanctification is. And somebody might say, well, verse one, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Somebody says, well, hey, I've gotten saved. I can just sin all I want now because my security is safe because Jesus Christ died for me. I can sin all I want. And the apostle Paul goes, no, don't go down that line thinking. That's what that word, uh, that phrase, God forbid means. Don't go there. Don't go down that line of thinking. But what he does describe is this, is that you're no longer under the dominion of sin. When you got saved, the power of sin died. The only reason you sin is because, not because you had to. Before you got saved, you sinned naturally. It was something you couldn't break free of. Ephesians 2 talks about this. You just sinned because that was your nature and that was what you did. You couldn't break free from it. But no, when a person gets saved, they're suddenly under the dominion of sin. It's like they've entered citizenship in another country. No longer a, a citizen of uh, this uh, evil world, but now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You've changed. 
And as the Apostle Paul talks about this, he goes through and he just simply says this, verse number six, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, 